good to see everyone here this evening and uh, welcome you again to Second Kings. And I'm enjoying Second Kings very, very much. I hope you are too. I think I'm going to begin this evening by asking us to turn to Exodus chapter 4. Now, you'll see that it has to do with what we're talking about. But in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the situation is that God had called Moses to be the spokesman for him to his people and also to warn Pharaoh. But Moses, you know, he asked a very good question in verse 1. It says, then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And that's a valid, valid question. And God answers that question. And it sets a precedence for us. All right, look at verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. Now, that really could have been the miracle. You grab that snake by the tail, and it'll be fine. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Verse 5, very important. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. In other words, the proof is in the miracle. Because it was a miracle and God did his miracle through a particular person, a chosen person, that's the one he's going to speak through. And that's one of the ways in which he gets their attention. I say that because we find ourselves again looking at Elisha and the fulfillment of his prophecies. And his prophecies can and sometimes do include a miracle. And so the question would be, is Elisha a bona fide prophet? You bet he is. And so was Elijah. The idea of miracles, that's the power of God. And they were included in their prophecies. And then also, too, we'll take a look at, once again, and I make no apologies. Go, we'll, we'll take a look uh, at the end of this at Deuteronomy chapter 18, where it says, here's the test of a true prophet and the difference between a false prophet. If the false prophet proclaims something and it doesn't come true, you shall stone him. So it's so important. So now, did Elisha's prophecies come true? You bet they did, and we're going to see it one more time. Now, there are other things that we can learn from it, but I just don't want to ever skip over what we see in the book of First and Second Kings of the exaltation of God's prophet. I think so much becomes clear of what a prophet is, uh, chosen by God, a spokesman, and his preaching is without error. Now, he may, be error, he may do errors in other things, uh, but his preaching, because it comes from God, it says in, sec, in uh, Second Peter that the Holy Spirit moved men as they spoke 
from God. And so we know that their preaching is, and the message from God is infallible. And then, of course, if those prophets were to write, it would be inspiration. And we jump right up to the New Testament. Who were the men that were chosen? They were chosen by the Lord himself. These were the apostles. And he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will bring all things to your remembrance. He will guide you into all truth. And so we have, I think, even a greater, a greater demonstration that they are spirit-filled and will speak and preach the truth, God's message. And when they write, it's inspired. So anyway, uh, I should say that at the beginning of every sermon because it's so true and it's, it's, a, it's the foundation really of why we're here. I guarantee you, if, this, if, if I thought there were errors here, I, I wouldn't be here. I, I just wouldn't. It wouldn't be, why would I do that? All right, okay, that's the pre-sermon before the sermon. All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 7. Now, unfortunately, we were unable to complete chapter 7. Uh, that's partly because we had to go and do the end of chapter 6, and it was connected to chapter 7. So we know that the words are inspired, but the chapters and the chapter numbers are not. They're good, they're helpful, but they're not necessarily in, inspired of God. Well, remember the situation here. The situation was the, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, he, he, they were about to die because the Arameans had surrounded them. They kept attacking them. This was an all-out army. And so they couldn't get any food, and so they were all starving. And you remember the horrific situation that happened that he was, the king was going down through the streets, and a woman cried out, help me. And he, when he inquired of her, she said, I had made an agreement that we would first eat my child, and then the next day we would eat the woman's child. And then the real sad part, or one of the other sad parts, is she doesn't seem to show remorse. She's just upset that it was a, a, a deal gone wrong. And, and he just tore his clothes and, and sat in sackcloth and ashes and mourned mourned about the situation more than mourning or repenting from his sin because the next thing he does is he curses Elisha and inevitably he curses God. And Elisha makes two prophecies. The first one is, is that there will be abundance of food. And they're like, no way. And the royal officer was there, and he said, what? Even if you had a window to heaven, which he did, so to speak. I mean, God spoke to him. If he, even if you had a window to heaven, is it possible that this could be true? And Elisha said, it's true. You'll see it, but you won't eat of it. And so now we pick it up, and we proceed further. Well, it has to do with the four leopards. Lepers, not leopards. It has to do with the four lepers. So there were four lepers there, and they were about to die like everyone else there from starvation. 
And they said, you know what? Let's go to the Syrian camp. Maybe they will give us food. Maybe they will kill us, but we're going to die anyway. So they go to the Syrian camp, and there's no one there. The scriptures tell us that it was God who made them think that chariots were coming because they heard the sounds of chariots. And they were so frightened, they left everything in camp, including their horses and donkeys. And what we're going to see is as they were making an escape to cross the Jordan River, they're, they're throwing clothes and they're throwing armor because they want to go as fast as they can not to be caught by this army or armies. They thought that Israel had hired some allies to come and get them. So these lepers then helped themselves and they ate all that they could. They saw clothes there and they even saw silver and gold and they hid the silver and gold. And that's where we stop. Well, let's just begin with the word of prayer and we'll pick it up from there. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it is exciting. And it's even more exciting because it's true. These aren't myths or fables. Lord, this is absolutely true. And this is how we know that the Bible that we hold in our hands is your word, infallible, inerrant. And so, Father, it has the authority then for what we believe, but it also has the authority for how we should live. So bring us in complete subjection to and agreement with the scriptures in what we believe and how we live. But Father, there are many, many other lessons that we'll learn, and I ask you to bring that to us tonight and as we study through this, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's pick it up in verse 9, because we're still talking about the lepers. 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9. And this is what they said. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So at first... After they had their bellies filled and their pockets filled and their gold hidden, they started to be convicted of, oh my word, um, the idea would be everybody else is going to perish in that kingdom if we don't tell them. Furthermore, we could be punished by the Lord through the king who would say, why didn't you tell us? Why did you allow people to die? And so they decided not to even wait till tomorrow but to go ahead and tell the king and and the people. So this was a good thing. And I think this obviously was of the Lord because this is what the Lord meant. In order for them to tell everyone, it would mean the fulfillment of Elisha's prophecy. However, if no one else knew, people wouldn't know the fulfillment of the prophecy. So what happens? Well, Verse 10, they speak to the gatekeepers. Why the gatekeepers? Because they certainly wouldn't have an audience with the king. 
lepers are not allowed to go in. They're non-touchables, untouchables. And in verse 10, we read this. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city. And they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans. And behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of a man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. So last week we did talk a little bit about this and uh, I was talking with someone after the class and they suggested, well, maybe one of the reasons that they didn't take the horses because the horses may have left the trail that they could have followed. And so they wanted to get out. They were fearful. They were terrified. Uh, A possibility. We'll actually mention that one more time this evening. So here in verse 10, they decided to go and talk to the gatekeepers of the city. And they told them, you know, it says we came to the camp and behold, there was no one there. There's only horses and donkeys and tents as they were. Uh, It doesn't say specifically they said about the silver and the gold, but I would imagine, I would imagine that that's there because everybody would have found out anyway. In fact, when it comes to the hysteria of the mass of people going there, that may have been one of the reasons because not only were they hungry, but hey, we could get our hands on some gold. So I don't know. It doesn't say one way or the other. I just surmise, uh, you know, they had, they had, convicted and repentant hearts, and so they had had come back. Um, now, as we look at this, let's look quickly at verse 11. And by the way, there's only, we're only going to look at 11 verses tonight. It'll be the end of the chapter. But we do have some other material that I would like to talk about. But verse 11 says, the gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. So, One of the uh, ideas here is that this just went out through the town, and it says that they told within the king's household. Now, I believe either they had an audience with the king and told the king, or they told his household so that they would pass it on. But it spread like wildfire, and we know the king does know because the next verse is going to say so. So here we have this idea where immediately they go, they tell, Uh, It gets to the king, but it's also starting to go throughout the kingdom. And you can imagine the excitement. And even the king perhaps was excited at first until he thinks about it. You know how that is. You have something you're thinking of doing, a decision, and it sounds good when you first hear it. But then as you start to think it through, you're thinking, man, that's not going to work. Well, that's kind of what happened to the king, sort of. Look at verse 12. It says, then the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. Now, this isn't a bad theory. And this is, we've seen this kind of thing in strategies and warfare. Uh, the, the, the ambush and a trap. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, a long time strategy of warfare. But there is a problem that I see. The problem is, is he's not contemplating on Elisha's prophecy. That's out the window. What he's talking about is he just doesn't think it's true. He doesn't see God in the picture. He doesn't see the prophecies in the picture. But he just sees this as a trap. 
and he believes that when they all come out, the, the, uh, they're going to be ambushed by the Syrians. Well, it's at this point, one of his servants has an idea. Let us send some people and go out and investigate. That's a good idea because we have the word of the lepers, but who can trust a leper, right? The only thing is, again, this should have caused the king to think of Elisha's prophecies. But you remember what he said in the beginning, this evil comes from the Lord and of course, it's in reference to Elisha as well. Much like Ahab, his father, said about Elijah and Jezebel, what they said about Elijah. So now, verses 13 through 16, we're going to take a look at this investigation. And it begins in verse 13. <clears throat> it says, one of his servants said, please let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. What do we have to lose? We're starving. And if the Arameans are out there and they kill these riders, well, then they don't come back. We're going to die anyway. But let's at least test it to see if this is true. The servant seemed to have more faith than the king himself. Well, as we take a look at this, we look at verse 14. And in verse 14, look at what it says. And they took, therefore, two chariots with horses. Now, there's two horses per chariot. So he's not sending out five. He's sending out four. You would think in such dire circumstances, it'd be helpful to send out as many as you can. Maybe half of them would be killed, but one rider could survive just to let everybody know. Well, it kind of reminds me of, of something, and I, I, hope, I hope it's not too, well, I'll just say it, and then if it's a problem, I'll just erase it from the tape. Um, it reminds me of the hunters that are out there and they know that there are grizzlies and they carry a six shooter and they say five is for the grizzly because you know the sixth one is for you because you don't want to go through what you're about to go through. So the point that I'm saying is maybe he's thinking, all right, here's the four that are going to go out and if they don't come back, I'm going to take the fifth horse and I'm going to get away. I don't know. That is really putting it into the context, but it is interesting that he only sends out four horses and keeps one aside. Now, let me see a show of hands who think I should erase that illustration. Okay, I'm going to turn the camera around and show that no hands came up. All right. We live in Wyoming, and that's, uh, that's the stark reality of things. All right. So these chariots then, these two chariots, they go out and they're going to investigate. And look at what they find in verse 15. It says, they went after them to the Jordan. They followed them or followed a trail all the way to the Jordan. Now that's, there's no ambush happening at the Jordan River. 
uh, that's a long ways away from where they were. So they, they weren't waiting in ambush. They were getting out of there. And notice what it says. And behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment, which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So maybe they didn't take the horses because they didn't want to be followed to leave the hoof prints and know which way they went. But that kind of went out the window when they started panicking and taking off extra clothes to run faster and their equipment. Just on another note, since we're talking about Wyoming and we're all Wyomingites here, you know, when, when people do get lost out in the wilderness uh, and they, they don't keep a cool head, they, they say many of them will discard their jacket and these things um, in not realizing that they're going to need it and they could die of hyperthermia. But in panic, that's just what happens. You say, I got to keep going. I got to go as fast as I can. This jacket is too heavy. Yeah, but tonight it's going to be needed. So perhaps they were in paralysis like this. They were in such a panic. I mean, they're, you know, the, I, I can imagine it this way. You're... You're going along and you're seeing that everybody's passing you. And everybody passing you doesn't have their armor on. And you're going, that's it, goodbye. And there goes the armor and whatever else that you needed to, to uh, lighten the load. So the, they, were, they were delighted to see this. And by the way, that was a trail for them. And uh, they were able to come back to the king and report it to the king. And that's what it says so we don't know exactly what happens between 15 and 16, but you can surmise. The king hears it, that they're gone for some unknown reason to those who don't believe in God or Elisha's prophecies. And the, you can't keep a thing like that secret. The people, you know, heard about it. And, and look at verse 16, the very beginning. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Of course they did. They were starving. You know, um, I don't know. Uh, have you ever been so hungry? And, and you don't even have to be starving. All you have to be is a teenager. <laughs> and uh, it's like you have a ferocious appetite and you just, you know, got to have something to, to eat. Well, uh, imagine being way into those stages and it was like, I got to make it over there because if I don't, I'm going to die. If I stay here one more day, I'm going to die. So they went, and it says that they plundered, meaning they took everything they could. That would probably, or well, we know it would include food. And, the, and, and you know what it would be? I'm eating one fruit while sticking another one in my pockets, okay? That's what's happening. They're starving. And then it says this, then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel. And here we go, according to the word of the Lord. You remember early in this chapter, this is when Elisha made this prophecy. At the moment, they were selling donkey heads and dove's dung. That's what they were selling and they were going for exorbitant prices because that's, that's, how, that's how depleted they were, how desperate they were. Now, all of a sudden, there was one big turnaround. The famine is over because it wasn't a famine because of no rain or anything like that. It was a famine because they couldn't get out and get more food. 
because the Syrians had surrounded them. And now they had so much that even fine flour, and that would have been like seven quarts, was sold for a shekel, which would have been about $8. Whereas a donkey's head, you know how pricey they are. That went for $632 in our economy today. So, well, so we already see the fulfillment of one of his prophecies. And there's going to be a conclusion at the end of this. It's going to say, and it all happened as Elisha prophesied. Again, elevating this whole idea. How do I know he's a true prophet? Because what he says comes true. And only God knows that. So God had given him the message. And of course, the miracles that he had, he did the miracles. Only someone who was chosen by God could do those miracles. So you better listen to him because he's a man of God. He's a prophet. He's a spokesman. And that's, we see that elevation in King's all throughout. Well, at this point then, we look at verse 17, and we really have moved very, very rapidly through this. It says, Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. So I'm sure the king's thinking is, Number one, the people are in a hysteria. We've, I mean, they're, they're going to break down the wall, break down the, the gate. Uh, we've got to control that, uh, either going out or coming back in. And so he puts his trusted royal officer in charge of that. However, again, he forgot what Elisha said. Because when the officer made that derogatory comment, about God and about Elisha. Elisha said, you will see it, but you will not eat of it. Look what happens. But the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So he died, and that prophecy was fulfilled. Both these prophecies have been fulfilled. And we see one, the first time it's mentioned, it was according to the word of the Lord. Here, we see it was just as the man of God had said. Well, which is it? Is it the word of the Lord? Or is it the, is it the word of a prophet? Both. Because when the prophet spoke, he wasn't speaking his own opinion. He was speaking the word of God, the message that God had given him and even commanded him to say. And so we have this elevation of the word of God. We have the elevation of the spokesman in the Old Testament, spokesman in the New Testament. That's why we're here teaching this, because this is God's infallible word. And he died. Uh, again, it would have been the mass hysteria. And, um, you know, we've all heard stories. Probably, uh, probably a police officer would know even more so of, of what can happen in these masses of people that are in hysteria if someone falls under their feet it's not like they're going to be very gracious and kind and slow oh be careful he fell boom they're going right over him and that's exactly what you you can't stop is the problem i mean somebody who doesn't see what the problem is is pushing you and and the ones behind them is pushing them and you literally cannot stop and i think at that point you're praying, oh, Lord, don't let me fall down. 
Uh, but the Lord indeed was bringing punishment to this man who really was derogatory towards the Lord and towards the man of God, the prophet, and this prophecy. And now he's dead. He saw it. He knows why the people were going there, but he never tasted of its fruit. And then verses 18 through 19, it is just a summary, but summaries are good. Summaries are there just in case we miss the point. And I love when scripture does this, um, and we may be saying, well, gee, uh, you know, maybe... Maybe the guy doesn't know how to write. No, he does. By the way, it's, it's inspired writing. So God is making a summary here, even though we know about it in the text. He's making the summary here because he wants to point out this emphasis. So in verse 18, it says, and it happened. Just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying two measures of barley for a shekel, and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. And that was exactly right. And you could imagine there probably, there probably were elderly people there who couldn't make that trip, uh, but maybe they had some shekels that they could buy it. And right away, I'm sure they, they threw the, the donkey's head right in the trash, Okay. Um, by the way, the dove's dung is either a, a name for a food, uh, like peas or something, some sort of peas, and it looks, <laughs> looks like dove's dung. So you're there and says, okay, you know, eat your dove's dung. We, we got to finish this. Eat everything on your, in your plate. Or it may have been for a fire starter. Uh, we know that, that, that all kinds of uh, uh, all kinds of excrement like that have fertilizer capabilities of burning, and that's how they would burn a fire. Of course, I'm not sure I'd want to eat a burger off of that. But um, anyway, uh, now that's okay. We're just not even going. In. I will be voted off on any illustration beyond that. Okay, so the first one was that now. Unbelievably, how do you stop a, a famine like that with people starving and instantly, overnight, now you have an abundance. You bring the enemy. God causes the enemy to hear chariots, which are not there. They fled and left everything there for the people of God. Once again, we're not only talking about the prophet here, but we're also talking about God's care for Israel his people, even though they're turning to other gods. In fact, that's part of the point. Why do you turn to other gods when I have provided for you and protected for, for protected you and have made a covenant with you? You are my covenant people. Verse 19, then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, so we're, we're hearing it again. Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? In other words, if we could see into heaven, if we could see God's mind, could, it, could he even do it? Calling God powerless, calling God unable to communicate his revelation to a prophet. 
And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. So, again, we have the idea of there are lessons that are, are being learned here, and it's Israel that's supposed to get it. And Israel is supposed to rejoice. You're eating fruit now. You're eating food, and you're rejoicing because God has done this, and you know God has done this because he did it through his prophet. So why the next day would you go back to worshiping Baal? And yet, that's exactly what happened. And it happens to the northern kingdom, and it happens to the southern kingdom to the point where he's warned them for centuries and said, if you will not turn, I will send you to another land, not the promised land, and you will be under my chastisement. And that's exactly what happened. All right, so I I do have two things I wanted to talk about. Uh, I do have a chart that I handed out. It's the chart of miracles of Elijah and Elisha and Jesus. So we're going to look at that in detail. But before we get there, I am going to ask us to go one more time to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And it just seems like no matter how many times we go back to this passage, it just becomes more clear and more clear. This is God's litmus test from the very beginning. You know, there was a test there with Moses for miracles. How will they know that I saw you? How will they know that I'm your spokesman? By those miracles. And here he says, how will they know that we, this is a true prophet and how will we know that this is a false prophet? Well, he's going to answer that for his people. First of all, verse 20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, watch this, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So there is an essence in the purification of those who claim to be prophets but weren't. And it was a purification that only the true prophets would be alive and speaking to the people, but it didn't work out that way. It didn't work out that way. But I want to look here for a second. Notice the word presumptuously, and he will use it again in verse 22. In the Hebrew, it is the first time zod, and the second time zadon. This is what it means. You know, presumptuously, like, well, gee, I just, I just assumed, I presumed. No, that's not what's meant here. It means to act proudly. Oh, I know. Here's what the Lord's saying. Or to act with insolence. Well, now I don't even care that, you, that, that the Lord told me or not. I'm just going to say that. I'm rebelling against God. I'm being a shyster with you. And it even says, or rebelliously. This is part of rebellion. So, so this is a false prophet who, who knows in one sense that what he's saying is wrong. And he's saying it anyway. And he's pretty happy about it. And he feels like he's going to get away with it. But that's not true. Um, if you were to turn over to Proverbs 21, 24, and I'll ask you to turn there. We'll see this, this word used. 
And you see that verse, and you see at the very end, he says, insolent pride. The word insolent is our word here, zadon. Now, but look at the words that are with it. Look at the synonyms. You know, somebody says, well, what's, what's, a, what's another word for thesaurus, you know? Is, it, is thesaurus in a thesaurus? And actually, you just say, yeah, synonym works for me. But these are synonyms of insolent. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. That's a better picture of explaining what it means there in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. And you would imagine these false prophets that whether they were self-deceived or not, and I believe that, that false prophets in that day and even false prophets in our day, some of them know. Some of them know and don't care. They know that the Lord has not told them, but they have people believing them. So as long as they have that and they're contributing, well, hey, we're good. We're good. It's the idea of insolence and rebellion. In Jeremiah, you don't have to turn there, but the word is used in Jeremiah 50, verse 32. It says, the arrogant one will stumble and fall with no one to raise him up. And the word arrogant there is this word, which means this is what he's doing. So it's someone who's arrogant and, and not someone who is a true prophet. And it says, so if you speak presumptuously in the name of the Lord, uh, meaning that I'm just going to say it is and I'm rebellion, rebelling and I don't even really care. But then notice what it says here then. It says, which I have not commanded him to speak. And so now we're throwing one more aspect here into the idea of a prophet. There is a sense in which they are commanded to speak these you know, you remember Jonah didn't want to speak uh, the prophecy and the message, but he had to speak, you know, didn't he? And, and there's the idea that if, if you're a prophet and you're commanded by God to say it, you know there is a divine uh, impetus there, uh, that you have a responsibility to say this. This is why God chose you is to say these words. And, you know, you remember with Jeremiah, Jeremiah struggled with that a little bit in some sense because, you know, Lord, it's always bad news, and I can hardly bear it anymore. And, and God was uh, very uh, serious and stern with him that he had to say it. This is a command. So, again, it's so interesting now when we see today, we see these uh, pseudo-prophets where they, they think they are a prophet. Well, I can tell you right now, if they think they are a prophet, they're pretty arrogant. Or to say, well, why don't you come to my school and I'll teach you how to be a prophet and to hear prophecy from the word of the Lord. Now they're doubly arrogant. So we know what, what camp they would be put in. Now it also says this. So either a false prophet is presumptuously speaking in my name or he's speaking in the name of other gods, the names of other gods. What? So someone who is not even a believer in Yahweh is on an equal level with a false prophet who is claiming he's getting his prophecies through Yahweh. He's on the equal plane. That, in other words, doesn't matter at all if you're an Israelite and you, you're presumptuously speaking in the name of the Lord, but you haven't been commanded. You're just like a false prophet who's serving Baal. 
and then it says he shall die. That's how important it is to God. You know, we've seen other things where we say, well, I don't know, was that a little too harsh or is that not too harsh? Here, it doesn't even matter. Don't even ask the question. The, the seriousness of God's word to God is number one. And that's why we have such strong language there. Well, let's just continue on in that and we'll take a look at it. Verse 21, I love this because it's the same thing similar to what was said there with Moses. He said, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And that is a valid thing. And even as Christians today, um, how do we know that the Bible is God's inspired word? Well, we go down the path, which we just talked about, the precedence in the Old Testament, these prophets, thus saith the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. We go to the New Testament, and it says that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses. And don't worry about what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will speak through you in that instance. Now, that's not to say that they were sinless. That's not to say that they weren't ever wrong in, in perhaps their lifestyle. We think of Peter, who was sitting with the Gentiles, and then when Jews came, he got up and left that table, and Paul rebuked him. So they could certainly uh, sin. They did sin. They weren't, they weren't sinless. But when it came to preaching, and when it came to writing, it was infallible. And even if it was the beginning of the New Testament, and maybe they hadn't figured everything out, they don't have to. Because the words coming out of their lips is from the Holy Spirit, who does understand everything. And I'm thinking of that one verse in Peter where it says that, you know, the prophets of old were trying to determine the time of Christ, uh, Christ's coming, and kind of the difference between his first coming and his second coming. They, they, they didn't know. You don't have to know to be under the inspiration of Scripture, you know? You don't have to know it. And there's a sense with even as us as believers, okay, let's say I go to a passage and it's a little bit difficult. You don't have to necessarily figure it out immediately because you know it's God's word. You know it's right. And I will tell you that that principle and that principle alone will help you figure out the difficult. But if you're just questioning, well, maybe this isn't God's word. Well, you're never going any further than that. But if you know, well, I, I don't know what it means, and it looks a little difficult, but I know it's God's word, so I know there's an explanation. And then the next thing you do is you go down and say, okay, this one is hard to understand. This one is simple. It's clear. So I take the clear because it's God's word, and that's how I interpret the difficult, because there can be no contradiction anyway. Man, I really am preaching tonight. But it, it, it is my heart and soul. It is my passion. I mean, it really is. And verse 21 says, well, then how will we know? The Lord's going to answer that. Verse 22, he says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Of course not. Because, number one, the Lord knows the end from the beginning because he planned it from the beginning. And in addition, he's the one who's carrying it out from the beginning to the end. So, of course, anything that comes from God through a prophet or an apostle 
will absolutely come true. It is true. It cannot be any other way. And we need not fear just because people say, well, I don't believe the Bible's inspired of God. And I'm, you, sh- you know, part of me says, I'm sorry, man, I'm really sorry for you. Wow, you have no hope, no basis or truth for anything. So if the thing does not come about or come true, then the Lord has not spoken it. And then it says, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Verse 20 says, the prophet shall die. And it says, you shall not be afraid of him. Meaning what? I'm not going to be afraid if I don't listen to his false prophecies. He's going to threaten all these things that if I don't listen, this is all going to come upon me. And by the way, that's what they do today. That's exactly what they do today. They promise these unbiblical promises that never came from the Lord. And then there's always these negative things. You won't be blessed by the Lord. You won't have this. And so do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to back down and you, you don't have to feel like, well, maybe they have something that we don't know about. No, we have something that we know about. And that's the word of God. Well, then let's move off of that. Let's, let's get off of that soapbox for a little bit, just for a little bit. Uh, and let's turn to our chart. So I've been wanting to do this for a while, and I did hand out this chart some time ago. And I even tried to color code it for you because I, I, some interesting things here. One is let's make some comparisons between Elijah's miracles and Elisha's miracles, and then let's also look at Jesus's miracles. So, and we have we have done some of this, so it's not new to us. But I thought this would be a good time, since we have a little extra time, to just go through some of these things. And also, too, I'm just going to throw it out there: Elisha has more miracles than Elijah. And quite possibly 32, depending on what you call a miracle and what you call a prophecy. But anyway, it's pretty close. And I, I, have, I have it here in this chart that's 16 to 32. But the question would be, well, if Elisha did twice as many miracles as Elijah, why does it seem that Elijah is the prophet? Moses is the deliverer? Elijah is the prophet. Well, let's just take a look at some of these. Um, there are, first of all, some of the comparisons that they did. We see that Elijah parted the waters. Now, I didn't get this color-coded, so there is a star aside of it on your chart. Uh, it's about the... Uh, I don't know, it's about the 14th one down. Elijah divides the water in the river. You remember that when they crossed to go over and Elijah says, you don't have to follow me. And Elisha said, by God, I will. Well, the very first miracle that Elisha does up up in the top is he divides the water in the river. He does the same thing. So we, we see one, this is giving him precedence as a bona fide prophet. It is the same miracle that another prophet did, namely Elijah. So we, we see this here, and this is already giving Elisha the mantle, which he already had. And then 
Um, look at the uh, look at the yellow. I think it's yellow in yours. Uh, we're we're on the left hand side of Elijah's miracles. It says flour and oil never run out. You remember he did that with the widow at Zarephath. This was Elijah. Remember that she never it never ran out as long as he was there. Well, we also see some provisions from Elisha, similar to that. Not exactly the same, but it's the same thing that he's providing. And if you drop down to about the, uh, let's see, what is that, uh, the sixth one, sixth or seventh, it says Elisha and the widow's oil. That was a wife of a deceased son of the prophet, and she was starving, and he tells her to go get jars big jars, and a miracle happens that they all get filled up with oil as she keeps filling them up. So he provides as well. And, and it's interesting that oil is also involved. Uh, but we also have another one uh, down a little farther than that uh, where Elisha multiplied food. Someone had brought some food, and it was very much like Jesus and feeding all of the people. Um, he multiplied the food. We also have, uh, you know, uh, where Elijah prays for a drought, it comes, and then later prays for rain and it ends the drought. Well, we don't quite have that here so far, but we do have that Elisha miraculously ends the famine. So they're, they're somewhat similar. Now, the question, back to the question, oh, by the way, uh, we see leprosy. Uh, Elisha uh, heals Naaman of leprosy. So that's a point that you want to hang on to. So still, why then does Elijah seem to be the favored number one prophet? Well, I think it's several things. And you can pick which one you think is the, the most important. First of all, at the very end of his ministry, he gets taken up in a whirlwind in this chariot, this chariot of fire. Wow, that, I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty good. That's, Elisha doesn't have anything like that. Secondly, the other big thing, and this may even be the number one, is with the fight against the prophets of Baal. And they try to light this sacrifice on fire and it shouldn't be a problem because God, their God, Baal, is, the, is uh, supposed to be the God of fire. should be an easy thing, but they can't. But he calls upon God. God brings fire from heaven, and then as the fire comes down and consumes it, then he then directs that the prophets of Baal be killed. Is he allowed to? Deuteronomy said so. Deuteronomy said anyone who speaks presumptuously in the name of other gods he shall die. So he was carrying out God's word and God's will. And so we, we see, and, and you might imagine, this might be something that would be very appealing to Israel. It would be very appealing to Israel in the sense of, you know, we're always under someone. You know, when they go into captivity, from that point on, they're always under someone. And they're always having to fight with us. And they're always having to pay taxes. We're looking for an Elijah. You know, whereas Elisha, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from this man of God. Let's 
lest I be attacked by a bear. Um, but he, 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 his ministry is a little bit more uh, compassionate, is it not? I mean, Elijah's was too when, when he helped out that, those, that widow and all of those things. But, but he, Elisha seems to have you know, twice as many things where he's helping people out. These miracles are, are helping, showing especially God's concern for his own people. Well, not only that, but then you remember when uh, they went to see Elijah, and I believe they were trying to apprehend him, and he calls down fire upon the captain and his men. So they send another 50 men, and they're going to apprehend him, and he calls down fire, and they are consumed. The third captain was a little smarter and and immediately bowed before him and repented and said, you know, I, I understand who you are. So that, that could be one of the reasons why Elijah is, you know, seems to have that precedence. And then also when we come into the New Testament, Elijah is mentioned a few times. So we, we see that. And then, of course, everybody's probably thinking right now, the elephant in the room. Well, when those two witnesses come, how about if one is Moses and the other one is Elijah? Might be. I don't know for sure. But that is a possibility. That, that does seem to fit in with what we've been talking about. Well, what I'd like to just do here for another moment is I'd like to also include some of the miracles of Jesus. And by the way, first of all, let me say, I have 34 of them written down. I've seen a list with more with 37. And, and you say, well, wh- why can't we determine it? Well, we can, except that. Some people are going to look at prophecies as miracles, and that'll give you an extra miracle <laughs> uh, and, and those types of things. But the other thing is, is that many times it just says one, one time that's being counted is, and Jesus performed many miracles on that one day. And that just gets one place. So, I mean, that's not to say he only did 34 miracles. This is 34 miracles that have been recorded. Uh, there's so many more that he did. But it's interesting to see which ones are recorded. Now, there's also two other things that I did not mention, uh, or, or one other topic that I did not mention, which was uh, for both Elijah and Elisha, and that is the raising of the dead. And I hope you can see the difference in the color. Uh, there's a red color, and then there's a reddish magenta. <laughs> That's the one that we're going to talk about here. And this is, we see this with Elijah. And he raises the widow's son, uh, 1 Kings 17. Remember that? And then we find out uh, that Elisha, one of his miracles, was that he raises the Shunammite's son. And by the way, if you just go one up, here's what, this is the chart. I didn't write this chart. I, I got this chart uh, off the internet, and it says, Elisha decrees a son be given to the Shunammite woman. So that is another miracle, and of course she does have a child then. And then the child dies, and she makes no bones about it when she goes to see him, but he raises the child. Well, when we go to the New Testament and we see Jesus, Jesus raised several individuals. The first one in number eight, Jesus raised 
the widow's son from the dead in Luke 7. And then number 12, Jesus raised the ruler's daughter from the dead, Matthew chapter 9. And of course, who could forget number 29, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that was, that was not a resuscitation. Um, he, he was dead and then he was brought back to life, not with a glorified body, but he was brought back to life. So we see three, and there may have even been more that were not included or written down. And then you could even include uh, number 33, Jesus himself rose from the dead, and I don't have the scriptures there, but he does say, I lay down my life and I take it. So the Father's involved in his resurrection, the Holy Spirit's involved in his resurrection, and in a mystical, uh, difficult way, the Son of God was also involved in his own resurrection. So we, we see this. So one of the things that we're seeing is he, Jesus doesn't get bested, okay? And I think there's a point there. The point is, is that God's son is God's son. He's the God man. And, and it says in Hebrews, it says that before God spoke through prophets and in through many various ways, but now he's speaking through his son, and of course, he is the son of God. He is a prophet. He is a priest. He is a king, but he's also divine. He's also God. And so we see so many of these. Now, here's where we come full circle. What's the importance of that? You remember Moses? He said, how will they know? And he said, throw your staff down. A miracle. They will know by a miracle. Now, maybe everyone isn't going to know that. Well, they should. But the Jewish people of all people should know this because they talk about Elijah. They talk about Elisha. They have all of these miracles from Moses. They see these miracles. They believe these miracles. They believe it's a test of a true prophet. And here comes Jesus doing all of these miracles, but they will not listen to what he says. And by the way, that was also spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 18, it says something very interesting. So before we get to the litmus test in verses 19 uh, and, or 20 through 22, we have these verses in verse 15. Actually, I will have you turn there. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, five verses before the verses we just looked at a moment ago. Watch this. And see if you can figure out who, who is being spoken of here. It says, the Lord God, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So this is Moses speaking. But who's the prophet? Is he talking about Elijah? A prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Now, I imagine that this would, in a general sense, apply to all of the prophets. But let's go on. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly saying, let me not ever, ever, I included that. Let me not ever, ever.
ever hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. They said, speak through Moses, your spokesman. And that was the, the birth of the concept of prophets. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. And then he says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And I, I would, and as well as many others, think that this is a reference to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And then he goes into the litmus test. This would be the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe. I mean, it would have an application in general to all of the prophets, but he makes it singular, a prophet. And who could that possibly be but the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, how do we know that he was prophet, priest, king, and divine? Because of the miracles. Because of the miracles that he did. And these these were miracles similar to the Old Testament, although not exact. He would he would not he is not bested by these other prophets, and and Elisha um, has some thirty two. Well, we see also too in the keeping of feeding, Jesus number nineteen fed at least five thousand. This is Matthew fourteen, and then look at twenty two Matthew fifteen, he feeds four thousand. So we know that those aren't the same. Thing. Those are two different times, and he fed them. Well, who do we know that fed individuals or people in the Old Testament? Well, at least Elijah and Elisha. And then as far as the leper, we only know that Elisha healed a leper and pronounced judgment of leprosy on Gehazi. Well, we find out, number six, Jesus healed a leper in Mark chapter 1, and then all the way down to number 28, Jesus cleansed 10 lepers. That, that is not a parable. I believe that that is a true, of, those are true events there. We also find out that he heals the blind. And there are four references to him healing the blind, and the one who heals the blind can be identified as the Messiah. And we really don't see anyone healing the blind other than Elisha making them blind and then captive and then surprise, you know, opens up their eyes. But Jesus healed the blind. And this was something that is spoken of him in the Old Testament as to identify him as the Messiah. We also see in there, I don't know if I highlighted it or not, but we see Jesus casting out demons and unclean spirits, and we see that happening numerous times. But again, he was doing that often, and some of them are not recorded or it's just generally recorded, but we we see that. And so now he has power over uh, even the, the angelic evil world, the fallen angels. He has He has power over them. And then finally, the best for last 
This is hope for you hunters and fishermen out there. Number three, the great haul of fishes in Luke chapter five. Remember, he said, have you caught anything? And, and you say, and they said, no. He said, try on the other side. And, and you, you know, you've already tried every lure in your tackle box. And you're, okay, I'll try. And lo and behold, the, the miracle of the fishes. And it also happens again in John chapter 21. And that one has to do with his resurrection. And when they heard the words, you know, hey, try on the other side, they knew it was the Lord. And, and Peter, uh, Peter uh, decides to, to, you know, jump out and, and go and swim ashore. And then on the shore were fishes that were being cooked by Jesus. So anyway, uh, and, and then we could even go through all of the other miracles, but I won't. But these are some that are in keeping with what we see with Elijah and Elisha. And by the way, we're not done with Elisha yet. We have a, a number to go. As you can see there, the list, we've, we've just finished uh, chapter 7 of Second Kings, and so we have uh, a, a couple more to go. But anyway, this is uh, all of this together is God saying, you can follow the trail, if you will. It's an easy follow trail that I've given for you to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's the one who died for our sins. And if we trust in him, trust in what he did on the cross, he will forgive our sins and give us eternal life. All right. 